morning. All right. As you grab, as you grab your seats, you can grab your Bibles to continue in our series and the Gospel of John. Is my hair okay? I feel like it's bigger. It's pretty rough. We made it to chapter two, so we're in John chapter two, so you have your Bibles turned to John chapter two. Uh, growing up, I played a lot of sports, and um, I think this is probably true in all of those sports, but particularly, uh, you know, little peewee football, little league football, Pop Warner football, what I did, and, and, and you know, you go out, and, and you're running, and you're working hard, and you're hitting people, and you're getting hit, and you're tired, and, and you say, coach, can I get some water? No. We'll get water in a minute. It's like, that's well, easy for you to say. You're standing over there yelling at us. We're the ones running. And you're, and now you're a little 12-year-old boy, and your heart's pounding, and your lungs are on fire, and you want water. And finally, the coach breaks and say, all right, y'all go get water. And now you got 40 kids with pads on running for three water bottles, right? And, and it's like, it like animals fighting over, give me that, you've had enough, and just it's splashing your face, it's hitting your, 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 your what is that thing called? Face mask, and it's splashing all over you, and, and you're trying to get water, and you're so thirsty, and your, your lungs are burning, and you just want to be quenched. And sometimes, the coaches think they're doing you a favor, because instead of water, they went and got Gatorade. But they didn't get, you know, good Gatorade, they got yellow Gatorade. And can I get an amen that yellow Gatorade is the worst, Scott's got a yellow Gatorade up there right now. Nasty. It's like pee in a bottle. Like, like, here's the thing. You know what no one eats? Yellow Starburst. Anybody like yellow Starburst? Get out. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I take it back. But, you know, you go and sometimes you go to drink the water and it's yellow Gatorade. And you're like, ah! But you're so thirsty that you drink it anyway. Because you got to be quenched. You gotta be quenched. Every one of us is created with an insatiable thirst, and there is but one drink that can quench it. Let's learn about that drink this morning. John chapter two. John the apostle writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these words, starting in verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it, drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. 
this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, they went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there a few days. This is the word of the Lord. We saw a couple weeks ago that John started his gospel in chapter one with the words in the beginning. And John was giving us this new perspective on the creation story, giving us new eyes and a new perspective to see the creation account by showing us that Jesus was the agent in creation, that Jesus was the creator. But he was also doing something else. John, in pointing us back to Genesis 1-1, back to the beginning, is showing us through his gospel that Jesus himself gives us a new perspective on everything. That the perspective and the angle and the, by looking the, through the lens of Jesus helps us to see everything with new eyes. So as you continue in Genesis and the narrative, you have the creation and then what immediately happens after the creation there's a wedding. And Adam looks at his wife and says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You see, we have a new perspective on the creation story, but we also have a new perspective on marriage. So the fact that Jesus' first miracle, the fact that Jesus goes and he launches his ministry at a wedding is significant. You gotta remember at this point, Jesus hasn't performed any miracles yet. The disciples are just getting to know him. They don't really understand exactly his power or really understand necessarily who he is or what he's come to do. But what better time to launch your ministry than a wedding? Now we have to understand a few things about weddings in this context. Weddings are very, very different than weddings today. See, in that day, people rarely got married for love. It just didn't happen. You didn't get married for love. You, you got married for reasons that benefited your family or for reasons that benefited the community, uh, reasons that were beyond or different than you loved so-and-so. And you know, we're going to take on the world together. And weddings were not just, uh, you know, for you and your friends or you and your family and your peers, weddings were whole community events. Everyone in the town, everyone in the community was coming. Uh, and there was no arguing over who's going to get a wedding invitation and, and we don't have room for them. Or uh, There was none of that. No arguing with your fiance of, I really want to invite them, but do we have to? No, everybody was coming. Everybody was going to show up. Um, and, and this was not a, hey, we're going to have an hour ceremony and, you know, we'll spend two or three, four hours at the reception. And, um, and, and no, it was none of that. No, this thing lasted a week. All right. Talk about Bradzilla coming out. This thing is lasting a week long. All right. And so weddings were a big deal, big deal. And it wasn't a big deal just because the bride was looking for her special day and for everything to be perfect and just right because, you know, this is going to be my thing. No, they were culturally big deals. They were big deals in the community, right? So that's the backdrop. You got to understand that when we come to this text. So, so everything at this wedding, big deal, and it was going fine. Everything was good. The party was happening. They were getting married. All was good until they run out of wine. How are you going to have a wedding without wine? Now, you might be thinking, no big deal, right? I mean, this thing lasts a week. I mean, what day even into the party is this? Like, I, I, I mean, 
This thing lasts two weeks, and so they've drank for a few days. Now, not no big deal. Go get some water. But as weddings were community events and community celebrations and parties, to run out of wine would have been a big deal for them. Not because Bridezilla was worried that her big day was ruined, but because this was a shame culture. Right? Think about it. This is a shame culture. And if this community celebration fell flat, these two families that were putting on this wedding would have received, received shame from the entire community. If they had newspapers, the headline would have read, Epic Fail as Weddings Run Out of Wine Halfway Through Celebration. We've reached out for comment, but the family has refused. They haven't been seen in days. If they had social media, it would have gone viral as everyone talked about how poor they must be and how terrible planners they are because they ran out of wine and they had nothing to do. But still, even though this is a cultural big deal at the time, like it's not the end of the world, right? Like, like there's no one dying, there is no war breaking out, there, uh, uh, there's nothing big cosmic going on in the grand scheme of things. This is kind of a small deal, at least from God's perspective, right? Like this isn't some big thing that God should be concerned about because it's just one wedding that ran out of wine a little too soon. So surely God is too busy to concern himself with the shame that these families will incur by running out of wine. Surely Jesus is more concerned about launching his ministry and doing spiritual things uh, and saving the whole world and he can't really be worried about this party and how it's going. And yet, that is exactly what we find Jesus doing. Jesus launches his ministry by saving the wedding. By saving the celebration, by saving the party. He cared, Jesus cared enough about these random families and this, and this situation of running out of wine that he saves the day for them. And as we read, Jesus takes all these pots of water and he turns them into the wine so that the party and the drinking can continue. The first thing that we need to notice here is that Jesus does care about the little things in our lives. While we might think that Jesus is concerned with the big cosmic universe type things in the world, we need to see that Jesus actually cares about the little things that matter to us. Jesus does not simply want to be involved in the big decisions of your life and in the tragic moments in your life and the scary big things in your life. He wants to be involved even in the little things, good and bad. Jesus wants to be intimately connected and close with you. I think about 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, where we're commanded to pray without ceasing. We pray without ceasing because there's never a moment in which God doesn't want to be connected to us. He wants us to be close in every area, every situation, the good, the bad, the mundane. But notice, so Mary, Jesus' mom, uh, she, she's the one who comes. She comes and informs Jesus, uh, her son, hey, they, they've run out of wine. Um, and Jesus has an odd response. That we're, I'm going to tell you now, we're going to get answered in the end. But Jesus has an odd response. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. If I said that to my mom, there would be a wooden spoon come out real quick. Y'all know what I'm saying? 
And uh, so Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And I love Mary's response because she completely ignores him. And she just said, looks at over these servants and she says, do whatever he tells you to do and walks away. So it's Jesus, they've run out of wine. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Y'all do whatever he says, I'm out. Like, like, here's the thing. Mary just simply trusts Jesus to handle it however's best. She doesn't know what he's going to do. He might not do anything. But she knows whatever Jesus does is the right thing that needs to be done. So y'all do whatever he says. I'm out of it. I'm giving you the news. How often do we come to the Lord with our concerns and simply just trust he's got it? And I'm going to rest knowing that whatever you do is good. We don't micromanage Jesus. I need you to do this this way. So that we trust that he's wiser than us, that he's gooder, if you will, than us. That the Lord can handle it how he sees fit, and that's a good thing. I love how she just walks away trusting him. So often in our lives, what do we do? We keep Jesus kind of at a distance, right? Like we like Jesus, we're into Jesus, we think he's cool, but we kind of want some distance from him until we need him. And then, you know, when we get the call that so-and-so's in the hospital, or we got a big test coming up we didn't study for, or we got a relationship crisis, or our kids are driving us up a wall, then we say, okay, Jesus, I need some help here. But then we put him back in his corner, I'll call you when I need you. See, Jesus doesn't want to be in the corner on standby on the bench waiting for the quarterback to get injured so he can come in and play the game. Jesus wants to be side by side with you day in and day out in every single little thing in your life. He wants you to pray without ceasing because he wants to, he wants to know that you're hungry right now and you're having a hard time focusing because you are hungry. Say, Lord, give me strength. He wants to be there. He wants to be, you know, I think about like, like best friends. Like when you have a best friend, like how there's kind of nothing quite like it. Like someone that you go to, you, you call every day, you talk to all the time. They know every detail of your life. You call them and you just vent to them. You complain to them. You just unload on them. Even little things that don't matter to them, they just listen and go, oh yeah, that's tough. That all the insignificance and worries in your life that you share with this person, Jesus cares about even the little things in your life. And he is not too busy for you. And he is not just worried about big cosmic things. He cares and wants to be there in everything. So the fact that Jesus would perform this miracle first shows us that he, he, he does care about these little things and he wants to be in your life. But how he does it how he performs this miracle tells us something else. See, after Mary, the mother of Jesus, gives Jesus the bad news about the wine being out, and she tells the servants to do whatever he says, and she walks away, verse 6 says this. Now, there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. See, John could have simply said, Jesus took some jars. Jesus found some buckets. Jesus filled a tub. He could have said any of those things, but he's very particular to tell us that there are six stone water jars and they were for the purpose of Jewish rites of purification. You can't miss that or you miss the whole point. 
He's very specific to tell us what he is using because Jesus is communicating a deeper truth and a deeper reality by how he does this miracle. He tells servants, go get the jars. They're used for Jewish rites of purification. And, and here's why they are important. In the Jewish religion, there were so many laws that would cause you to become unclean. Like if, if, if you were hunting and touched the blood of an animal, you're unclean. If you touched a dead body, you were unclean. If you ate bacon, you were unclean. Oh my goodness, how did they live? I mean, thank you Jesus for bacon, amen? If they, if they ate the wrong thing, they ate shrimp. They were unclean. I mean, come on. And so if they eat, and then if they lie, if they do anything wrong, they're unclean. And so they're getting unclean all the time. And to be unclean meant they were disconnected with God. They were, they were cut off. There was something now blocking them, their access to God. And so they would have to go through ceremonial washing. They would have to use jars just like these full of water, and go through a ceremonial ritual process to go from being unclean to clean so they can, again, have access to God. So the question is, why did Jesus, and why is John so particular to tell us he used these jars to turn water into wine? These jars are a visible sign pointing to the Old Testament, pointing to the law and to the old rituals and the old ways that we tried to gain access to God. They were the attempts of the Jewish people to make themselves right before God, which is marked by trying to follow the law, do these rituals, sacrifice animals, do festivals. But again and again and again, for thousands and thousands of years, these efforts failed to connect them to God. They failed to quench the thirst of their souls. And so, if you know your Bibles, what did the Jewish people do again and again and again? The thirst of their souls was not quenched through these rituals and through God, and so they turn and worship other gods. They turn and worship idols. They thought, Yahweh, God, is not quenching the thirst of my soul, so there must be another God. And so they would go from God to God, idol to idol, trying to be quenched. See, but these idols were just water. They couldn't quench the thirst of their soul. The idols were like water and trying to drink all this water to quench, and it couldn't quench them. It was the wrong drink. But we do the same thing. We dress up water thinking it will quench us. I think, this is funny to me. Think about this. Like When you go down to Kroger's, <laughs> amen, with an S, you go down to Kroger and you go to the water section and there's all kind of water, right? You go over and you got Fiji water for, for y'all, uh, you know, exotic people. You got literally smart water for y'all who think you're intelligent. You got Deer Park water for, for your hunters out there. And then you got the Kroger brand water for us cheap people. You got water for everybody. And some of it's a dollar. Isn't this amazing that you can pay a dollar fifty for a case of water, but if you go to a drink machine, you gotta pay a dollar for one bottle? Rant over. <laughs> you go, and some of that water is like a dollar, and some of that water is like four dollars. You can make it more expensive. You can purify it all you want. You can put a fancy label on it. You can even make the, bottle, the plastic bottle look all kind of crazy ways. But at the end of the day, it's just water. 
tasteless. We can dress it up, make it look nice, but it's tasteless. We were created with an insatiable thirst that only God can quench. And we try to find anything and everything to quench this thirst in our soul that will bring us this true joy and satisfaction that our our souls are just, like our lungs burning to drink, our souls are burning to be filled with that, right? We're desperate for it because we're made for it, but every attempt to quench that thirst is water that we've dressed up. And water won't quench our thirst. See, we're like Israel with this insatiable thirst. And instead of drinking deeply of Jesus, we drink water with fancy labels. We drink the water of the world. We look at material things and think they'll quench us. Right? Like we rack up credit card debt with stuff thinking that in the deepest parts of our heart, that the new boat will quench, that the new house will quench, the new car will quench the thirst of my soul. And it's not enough, and it's not enough, and we pile on and pile on, and then we're hundreds of thousands of dollars in credit card debt from stuff we tried to shove into our heart, but it's just water with a fancy label. Sometimes we think relationships will satisfy. We think that if we could finally get in a relationship, get married, or have someone love us, someone think we're beautiful, whatever, then we'll be quenched. And so what do we do? We compromise our values and we date the first person interested and it ends horribly. We think having children will satisfy us. And, that, and so what do we do? We spoil our kids and we never discipline them. And they turn out rotten because you're afraid to discipline them because you want them to be your best friend. And if your kids are your best friend, then you'll be happy. They don't quench. You think money will satisfy. And so you work and work and work. Don't ever pay attention to your kids. You pile up money and you save it and it's never enough. Ask yourself this question. Where do you spend most of your time? Where do you spend most of your money? Where do you spend most of your effort and worry? What do you wish for? And whatever those things are just might be these false idols, false gods that you have been drinking deeply of and they've left you thirsty. It's all water. And it tastes good for the moment. It quenches for the moment. But it never actually quenches your thirst. So Jesus fills up these purification jars with water as this symbol of all of our efforts to quench our thirst have failed. They've fallen short. And what he does is communicating that only he can quench our thirst. In the Old Testament, whenever God's blessing was on his people, or when we're looking forward at promises of what God was going to do, when the final blessing of God was going to come, do you know what it's always marked by? The flowing of wine. Jeremiah 31, 12. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd, and their life will be like of a watered garden, and they will never languish again. They will rejoice in the dance. They must not be Baptist. They danced. 
And the young men and old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. When does that day come? When there's new wine. Isaiah 25, verse 6 says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord your God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the reproach from his people we will take away from all the earth the Lord has spoken when that day comes when joy comes when death is defeated when all is set right do you know what it is marked by well-aged wine that is flowing on the day when the world is set right when our deepest longings are filled when our thirst is quenched it will be because wine is now flowing So Jesus has these servants fill up these purification jars of water and he turns them into wine. And then the servants take the wine to the man who is in charge of the wedding. He's the MC, he's the master of ceremonies. He's the wedding coordinator, okay? And he's, he's doing that and he says this after they bring him the new wine that Jesus has made. And he says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine But you have kept the good wine until now. What does this mean? See, usually people serve the good wine first. And once people had gotten a little loosey-goosey, because, spoiler alert, the wine had alcohol in it. So when they got a little loosened up, and they weren't thinking so clearly anymore, they give them the bad wine and no one cares. See how that works? So that's what normally happened. And so the party master, the MC, the master of ceremonies, is surprised. Why did you wait and give the good wine last? You see, Jesus was telling us something. You see, throughout all of history, God has talked about true joy, but you've never tasted it. You've tried every substitute. You've tried to be filled and quench your thirst in every possible way, but you've drank deeply of everything else, and you found in the end that it's only water. And Jesus is saying, God has kept the best for last. He has saved the best wine until the end. And it is as if God is saying, come taste and see my son. He will satisfy you. Come taste and see that the Lord is good. Behold, the old has passed away, now new is coming. See, religion will not satisfy you. Doing purification will not satisfy you. Trying to connect to God in any of these ways won't satisfy you. New cars, new houses, new stuff, it's all water. It, 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 it fills your thirst for a minute, but then you're thirsty again. It doesn't quench Nothing will. Success, money, none of it will quench. A marriage, kids, it will not quench your thirst. Only Jesus, who is the best wine, will quench your thirst of your soul. See, Jesus is saying this, that he is the true and better master of ceremonies. He is the true and better MC. He has come to throw the biggest party where the best wine will flow freely, where we're all filled with unending joy. Jesus has saved the best for last. This party, as a sign that the Old Testament foretold, 
that there is a bigger banquet feast coming. There is a bigger and better party coming, a bigger celebration that is coming. You see, the best water, the most filtered, the most expensive, the best labeled water might be taste good, but it brings momentary satisfaction. And you weren't made for water, you are made for the true wine. And only when you drink deeply of Jesus do you get that wine in your veins and you'll be truly filled. Sometimes I think people look at Christianity and they think that we're sticks in the mud and we're boring because we don't play cards. I know y'all play cards, it's okay. I play cards too. We don't, you know, but we have this view we don't play cards and we don't dance and we don't drink and, and, and we're these sticks in the mud who don't have fun. But Jesus is saying, I'm coming to bring the biggest and best banquet party you've ever seen that puts everything you do to shame. He's the true master of ceremonies who will come to throw the biggest banquet. And that's the last thing I want us to see this morning. You see, Jesus has answered these other problems there was a problem in the party and Jesus cared for the little things and so he fixed that. There's a problem with our hearts and the quenching of our souls and he fixes that by, by when we drink of him, we'll be quenched. But finally, there is a relationship problem. You see, God throughout history is always related to his people as a king to his servants. But God has always wanted to relate to his people as a husband to his wife. So what better time to launch his ministry than a wedding? What does every single person think of when they go to a wedding? Everybody who goes to a wedding, what do they think of? They think of their own wedding day. Whether you've already had it or you are imagining what it might be like, when you're at their wedding, you don't care about their wedding, you're thinking about your wedding. You look forward to that day. And when Jesus is here at this wedding launching his ministry, He's at a wedding because the whole reason Jesus has come to this earth is to find a bride to marry. Jesus is here at this wedding and he must be thinking about Revelation 19 this day. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. Do you remember that moment in the story where Mary, Jesus' mom, tells Jesus they've ran out of wine, and Jesus has this odd response. He says, what does this have to do with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. See, the hour in John's gospel, anytime we read that word, that phrase, the hour, it refers to the hour of his death, the hour of his crucifixion. You see, Jesus knows the only way he will have his wedding day, the only way he will secure for himself a bride is if he faces his hour, is if he faces his death and crucifixion. Jesus knows that he must lose all joy so that we could find it. Jesus knows that he must drink full the cup of wrath on the cross so that we might drink the cup of everlasting joy. Jesus knows that water 
is never going to make us right with him, never make us into a place where we can enter into this type of relationship with him, but only blood could. The water of these, in these jars, these Old Testament purification jars, only purify you on the outside. And so he turns it into wine as a symbol of his blood that doesn't just clean the outside, but cleans the inside. See, Jesus sheds his blood to make his bride lovely. Every groom on his wedding day stands here looking out back at these double doors and everyone in the crowd is doing this number because everybody wants to see the bride's face and then how does the groom respond when he sees his bride for the first time? When I was married, when the doors opened, I just started bawling. I have no idea. I know why, but I wasn't ready for it. I was excited. I was nervous. And I was standing there, and I was getting anxious. And the second the doors opened, Niagara Falls, baby, for the whole ceremony. And here's Kate, and when she has this tissue, and she's just having a great time. You need this? Yeah. Because every groom looks at his bride, and he thinks she is radiant and Jesus is no different Jesus suffered and died and bled so that he could make you his bride who to be radiant and spotless without blemish and beautiful so that now when Jesus looks at you, when you have drank deeply of him, when you believe the gospel, you become his bride and he sees you beautiful See, brides wear white on their wedding day to symbolize purity. And right now, we can't wear white as Jesus' bride because our hearts are black with sin. But through his blood, he makes it possible for us to wear white because though we still sinned, he has made us white as snow. Isaiah says, though your sins be like scarlet, he has made you white as snow. He has made you beautiful and radiant. You see, I think often our greatest fear is this. And even in our marriages sometimes, our greatest fear is this. If my friends really knew me, if my spouse really knew me, I mean the real me, the, the, the deep thoughts, the things that no one else knows are going on, the feelings that I have, the things I want to say to her sometimes, if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. If they really saw what was on the inside, they wouldn't love me. Let me tell you this about Jesus as your spouse. He sees you. and He sees all of you. There is nothing that you hide from him. You are laid bare before him and he sees every bit. And yet, still, he drank the cup of wrath so that you could drink the cup of joy. He still went to his hour and was suffered and beaten and killed so that you could be made beautiful. He has made you lovely. See, John takes us back to Genesis 2 where we see the first wedding. And that first wedding with Adam and Eve was always meant to be a sign, an arrow pointing to its fulfillment. That God wanted more with you than simply being your king. He wanted to be your husband. 
He indeed has loved us like a husband when he gave his life for his bride. We can sum the Bible up like this. Jesus is the prince who left home to go to a far country to face down the evil dragon to rescue his princess and take her home. Jesus came and laid down his life to rescue us and make us his bride. And so, if you are in Christ, you are not simply servants to a king, you are the bride to a husband. If you don't know Christ, he is offering for you to come and taste and see. Come and drink the true wine that satisfies and give up that water. Come and taste and see that he is good. Today, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And we drink this juice that we think is wine, that we look at as wine, as a reminder that only Jesus can quench our thirst. And so let's drink deeply of him. He's the true wine. And we eat this meal as an appetizer. Because every time we take it, we look forward and we long for the day when this feast will be full because our Savior is preparing a banquet of which all other banquets pale in comparison. There is a wedding that we await to go to at the marriage supper of the Lamb where the true master of ceremonies will throw the biggest party you've ever seen and we will be there with him where the wine will flow freely and our thirst will be quenched. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, you've never drank deeply of him, you don't know what it's like to have the quench, the, soul, the thirst of your soul quenched, then I want to encourage you today to not, to not drink this, to not eat this, to let this pass by you and to come afterward and grab me or somebody you trust and know and say, tell me about how to drink deeply of Jesus. I need to know more. But if you are his you are his spouse and he has given his life for you to drink this. Drink it deeply, drink it full and remember how much you are loved. You are so loved he gave his life for you. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning to drink 